If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And if you need a Bible, there's several laying around on the pews. Hebrews 11. I know you've heard that over and over and over again for many Sundays. Going back into last year, and uh, I'm hoping we'll actually get to the end of it, and possibly even into a couple verses in 12. That'll be awesome. So we're at, uh, we're actually at verse 30, and we're getting to a point where we're going to see something special here, and I hope you see it. Last week we were talking about Moses, by faith Moses, and all the things that uh, he did, by faith the things his his parents did by faith. And it was a faith that they had in something way bigger than themselves. Now we're at, uh, and this seems so familiar because anybody who's listening to the Wednesday night podcast or you're here on Wednesday night, uh, we've been talking about Joshua. So when when I read this, it seems to me like I've said it so many times but we actually haven't gotten to it on, on Sunday. So here we go. Uh, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. So a while back, I asked the question, how many times did the nation of Israel walk around the walls of Jericho? And many people will say seven. We'll call it this verse right here. But with, so in Bible trivia, pay very close attention to the question. Because if somebody asks how many days did they walk around the walls of Jericho, it's seven. But how many times total is going to be a different answer. So one time for six days in a row, and then on the seventh day they walked around seven, so it's 13. And... Uh, we had somebody, when I asked that question, sitting up here in the front, they got it right. So this is, so now we're at Joshua. So we've talked about Moses, and Moses was their leader all the way up until the time he died, and then Joshua took over. So Joshua is the one who takes the children of Israel into the promised land. So now... We have to look at uh, Joshua and what the name Joshua means. So in the New Testament, if you was to take that name out of the Old Testament and put it in the New, just like the uh, uh, Elias Lay Ministerial Association that we have now, it used to be the Shawsville Lay Ministerial, now it's Elias. Why? Elias. Well, if you have a newer Bible, a newer version of the Bible, a new translation, it will, in the New Testament, it'll say Elijah just like it does in the Old. But in the King James Bible, when you say Elijah in the Old, when you, when you go to the New, it's Elias. It's the Greek way of saying it compared to the Hebrew way of saying it. So, uh, Joshua, if you was to take that name, and in fact, there is in the New Testament, Jesus, and it's talking about Joshua. It might even be, I know it's in one place, it might be two places in the New Testament that you'll see the word Jesus. I know there's one, but it's talking about Joshua. 
the new versions of the Bible, they change it to Joshua. It's, and it's correct either way. But it throws off numbers in the Bible. It throws off numbers. And if you're into numbers and how certain things add up to certain things and numbers are significant, if you believe in that, then if you change it to Joshua, you're messing up a count that will come out to be 777, possibly. It throws it off. So, Joshua is Jehovah saves. That's the same meaning that Jesus is. So, Jesus is the one who takes us into our promised land. Now, uh, that was a great victory. They had gone through the Red Sea, they had gone through the River Jordan, and now they have gone through the city that was blocking them from going into the Promised Land. They have got victory there. And then there was a person in Jericho, a very special person. Now, if you go back at the beginning of all these people in uh, Hebrews 11, and you go back, and you, it starts with uh, Abel. And if you go down through here and you're looking at all these different names, this is the people of God. God had relationship with these people. And then you got Abraham, and it's, just, it's, and it's males. It's, it's guy. All right, this dude, 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 dude. And then you have Sarah, woman. And you don't see another woman's name until you get all the way over here to 31, and it's Rahab. What? She's a harlot. She's a prostitute in the city of Jericho. She made the list. This is Hebrews 11. This is the hall of faith. And a harlot made the list? And something is said about her. Up until this point, it's all people of God and then the nation of God, Israel, the chosen nation, all the way up to Joshua, and then all of a sudden there's a name thrown in here, and it's by faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Gentile. Well, Jesus coming down here and dying on a cross made a way for not just His chosen people, but for all the Gentiles to have a way to go into the kingdom of God, or the promised land. And Rahab here is, is that transition where you're seeing it's all about the nation of Israel up until Rahab has an opportunity to believe God. And this Gentile had more faith in the God of Israel than any of the people of Israel had in him. So Rahab, wonderful that it's here in this chapter. Now notice as we get into 32, how these names are mentioned. It's just amazing people in the Bible and their names are mentioned, but nothing is really said too much about them. <clears throat> but they said something about Rahab. Isn't that cool? The many heroes of faith. 32. And what shall I more say? 
for time would fail me to tell of, and you got all these names here. So I'm at that point now. We've been going through Hebrews for so long, and I started feeling it, you know, time would fail me to go through in detail all of these people. I'm just going to tell you, go back to the Old Testament and read it for yourself, and it'll tell you all about these people. We're going to talk a little bit about them, but the, the writer of Hebrews, he, just, he mentions them, and then he throws a bunch of things out, and you have to connect the dots. So time would fail him, this person who's writing Hebrews, to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah. Now those are four judges that you'll find in the book of Judges. And then you have of David also, the, the, the greatest king of Israel. And Samuel, he was very special. He, he would be uh, kind of like a judge and a prophet. And then it says, and of the prophets. So this whole list up until this point is from Genesis, the very beginning of Genesis, and we can follow all of these names all through the Old Testament and of the prophets takes you all the way to the end of the Old Testament. It covers everything. And this short little section of Scripture in Hebrews 11. And if you take all these names, you can put them in where they go throughout the Old Testament, right? You can just say, all right, he goes here, he goes there, he goes there. And what you will not find in this long list of names... What you will not find. See, the things that are missing are important too. You know that there is uh, <clears throat> the apocryphal books. The apocrypha. You could get a really old Bible and they'll be in the middle of the Bible. And they're not in our Bible. Like the, 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 the book of Maccabees. There's like two of them, one and two. There's other books and people will argue, well, they should be in the Bible. And others say, no, they shouldn't. There's absolutely no name mention of any character in any of those apocryphal books that are here. None of them are here. So we can safely say they don't belong in the canon of Scripture. It's just a little proof here. All right, so uh, what do you know about Gideon? And again, if, you, if you're in a King James Bible, you're looking at uh, Gideon and it's spelt different. I've already explained why. So, uh, so who was Gideon? And I'm going to read something out of uh, my John Phillips commentary to you. And it's talking about these four uh, judges. And I thought this was really good. So I'm going to read this. And of course, I'm going to be adding some things in uh, on what he's talking about here. The four judges came from an age of darkest apostasy. Whenever, whenever a judge shows up in Israel, it's because they've gotten themselves in a really bad spot. Uh, when a prophet shows up in Israel, it's because they have really got themselves in a mess. Every time a prophet shows up, it's because 
they have got themselves in ruin. Bad things are happening. Okay, so these four judges, around the names of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, whole books could be written. Gideon was the, this is, this is John Phillips, so you're going to notice all of the E words. He loves doing that, and I think it's fascinating. Um, Gideon was the exercised man. Barak was the exhorted man. Samson was the exceptional man. And Jephthah was the excommunicated man. Now, hopefully you know all these characters. You you probably know Gideon pretty well. He's pretty famous. Barak... He was the judge that, along with Deborah, did great things, but he had to have her or he wasn't nothing. Uh, <clears throat> Samson, most people know about him, his hair getting cut, Delilah deceiving him. But Jephthah, you may not know about him, but he's the one that had the daughter, and when he came back from, I think it was a great victory, and he, and he said, the first thing that I see when I get back, I'm going to sacrifice to you, God. And the first thing that he saw, first person he saw come running out the door to meet him was his beloved little daughter. Now, does it mean that she actually got sacrificed? I don't think so. Just like uh, Abraham, you know, taking Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice, and knowing that, you know, we know that he would have done it. But God stopped him. But I think she was set apart for God never being able to bring any children into the world or what, all that. So um, it's, it's, it's a, an amazing story that will open your eyes up for sure. Standing wherefore, I'm back to reading now, standing where, somewhere in the shadows of the life of each of these men was a woman. Behind Gideon was a concubine, a woman who endangered him. Indeed, her son, Abimelech, was a bramble of a man, a man who massacred all but one of Gideon's sons and who proclaimed himself a king in defiance of God's law. For like Solomon after him, Gideon loved many women, had numerous wives, and set a bad example to Israel. Now, most of you, when you, when you were taught this uh, story of Gideon, you didn't get that far. You know, Gideon, oh, Gideon was so great, he was so wonderful. And how many kids did he end up having? How many sons did he have? We don't know how many kids. He probably had all kinds of daughters that we don't even know about. But how many sons did he have? You remember? Seventy. Because he had many wives. You're, you're, you're thinking, oh, his poor wife. No, his poor wives three score and ten sons. Now, does that count Abimelech? Because <clears throat> he was from the concubine. So this one son that's mentioned from the concubine decided he's going to kill all the other 70, and only one of them es escapes. The Bible is something else. The Bible is something else. Okay, so Gideon... Behind Barak was Deborah, a woman who encouraged him. So Gideon was endangered by the woman in his life. 
uh, Barak had Deborah, a woman who encouraged him. Indeed, without her, we might not never have heard of Barak at all. It was she who kindled the fire under his faith. Behind Samson was Deliah, Delilah, a woman who enslaved him. She left him shorn of his locks, bereft of his power, weak as other men, a prey to his foes. Behind uh, Jephthah was his daughter, a woman who ennobled him and taught this world a lesson in devotion and love it should never forget. Gideon was noted for his... So this is, this is going back through the list again. Gideon, we're back to Gideon, was no, noted for his visions, notice the V word, visions, for the way he was visited by God, given signs and led by dreams. And notice it wasn't just his dreams. It was the dream of his enemy that gave him the most confidence. Remember he snuck down and he was... He was too scared to go by himself, and he got somebody to go with him, and they went down, they snuck down, and they were listening, and his enemies dreamed a dream how he, Gideon, was going to defeat them. Uh, he became a hero of the faith because he acted according to God's revealed will. Barak was noted for his victory, and a mighty, resounding victory it was. All was of God. The enemy's 900 chariots of iron. I mean, how are you going to beat that? They were simply bogged down in the mud. God stepped in with storm and flood, and the impossible became the possible. God likes to use those impossible situations, put us right in the middle of them, and see what we're made of. See if we have faith in Him. Do you believe what you're doing is what God has called you to do, and it'll put you in an impossible situation to see if you will follow through with it and watch the impossible become possible. Samson was noted for his valor, his picturesque and colorful victory stand out boldly on the canvas of his times. Even after his dreadful fall, Samson laid hold of God for one last surge of power and for a demonstration that he could be faithful even unto death. Jephthah was noted for his vow, a rash vow indeed, but one which after all did lay hold of God in mighty yearning and desire. What lessons the Hebrew readers of this epistle could glean from the lives of these men whose histories were so familiar to them, lessons of faith doing what God demanded, of faith believing God for the impossible, of faith picking itself up, up after a disastrous fall to become true to death, of faith desiring God above all earthly ties and joys. See, you get all of that out of those four names out of Judges. And if you don't take these four names and go back into the Old Testament and search them out and read all those stories, you won't get it. You won't know. But this is written to the Hebrew Christians. It's not just written to the Hebrews and them alone. It's actually written to the Hebrew Christians. It's 
you've got better things now, don't go back to the old. That's, that's the theme of this whole book of Hebrews, is there's something better now. Don't go back to the old. You've got all of these examples of people who did all these great things before Christ came and died on the cross. But now, He has come, He has died on the cross, He's taken all your sins away, and you have seen the substance. You know, uh, the Old Testament saints had only the shadows, the types and pictures. We have the substance. Jesus came. All the things that pointed to Him were all great and good. But Jesus came down and fulfilled all of what was said about Him in the Old Testament. And now we have that substance. They, they, they had good things. We have better things. So how could you... Listen to this. How could you and me, how could any of us, with the examples of faith that we see here of before Jesus coming, do we have any excuse whatsoever to not live in faith? We have better things than they had. Of David also, I'm back in the Bible, Hebrews 11:32. of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who, through faith, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who was that? Yell it out. Daniel. He stopped the mouths of lions, right? That was Daniel. Quenched the violence of fire. Who was that? Joseph's over there giving me the answers. He's, he's all smart over there, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What were their Hebrew names? Ah, I got you. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That was their Hebrew names. I like referring to them by their Hebrew names. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is their Babylonian names. They honor the false gods. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah... They are names from the Hebrew that mean good things about God. Okay? Uh, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant, valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Wow, they were invaded with UFOs too. So that's just foreigners. Uh, 35, women received their dead raised to life again. I mean, this is awesome. It's just getting better and better. This is where most preachers stop. Isn't this wonderful? You live this life of faith and all these great things will happen to you. Uh, amen, we're done, let's go home. But there's more to read. And others were tortured. What? But it was going so good. But others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, 
that they might obtain a better resurrection. Wow. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah, whichever one you want to call them, they had an opportunity to just go with what was going on and be safe, or suffer being thrown in the fiery furnace. They had to make a decision. That's just three Hebrew people out of thousands and thousands that were taken into Babylon captivity. So the, this, that, that whole story is a picture in my mind of, and if you have a Schofield Bible, you can look down at the bottom if you're over there reading about that in Daniel. Uh, it'll say that uh, it's, it's an example of the remnant in the tribulation. Most will fall. Most people in the tribulation will try to save themselves from the torture and torment, but there'll be a few who will stay true. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were three people out of who knows how many that were true to God. And it looked like it was going to be really painful being true to God, being thrown in the fiery furnace. And they actually told Nebuchadnezzar, look, God can deliver us out of that if he chooses to, but most of the time he don't because he would rather you have a better resurrection and give you an opportunity to be tortured and die. Go to your death, not denying the son who saved you. Most of the time God will let that happen to you. And are you going to choose that? Or do you want to save your earthly body that's only going to be around for a short period of time, or will you actually give up your life, the pleasures of this earth, and be killed for his namesake and have a better resurrection? It doesn't, I'm not saying that you're going to lose your salvation. It's not about what you do to keep your salvation. Once you believed, you believed. I'm talking truly believe. Then you might falter, but you won't get a better resurrection. You'll get resurrected, and you'll go to heaven, but these people wanted a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. Now, that means that they were executed by their own people. They were stoned. That was the Jewish way of executing people. They were sawn asunder. Asunder means to be separated. They were sawn in two. Uh, legend has it that uh, evil king Manasseh put Isaiah in a side of a hollow tree and then commanded it to be sawn down. And they cut through the tree, cut through him, cut him in half and to get the tree down. I don't know how true that is, but I know I've heard that before. But the Bible says they were sawed asunder. That means it happened. We're tempted. That, so you have, uh, to be tempted would be whoever took them knew their Christian principles were very dear to them. So if you happen to be in a bad place of this world and certain people get a hold of you and they know you're Christian, they will do things to you to tempt you to deny your faith. 
And they just, it's like having sport with you. And we'll see how true you are. So they were tempted. You know, and, and I'm not saying, <laughs> we see the word tempted and we're thinking, you know, some pretty pitiful stuff that we're tempted with. But I'm talking really bad stuff that they were put under. Were slain with the sword. There was, there was a whole bunch of, I think it was priests who uh, sided with David. And King Saul had them all killed with the edge of the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Listen, of whom the world was not worthy. We don't even know their names. It was, and others were tortured. And they had cruel trials and mockings and scourgings and they were stoned and all these people we don't even know their names and the world wasn't worthy of them they were so great they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth and these all having obtained a good report through faith received not the promise while they were living on this earth but they sure received it once they left, and that's what verse 40 means. Most people have no clue what verse 40 means. God having provided some better thing for us, and we sang, we sang about it. We sang about it this morning. When the roll is called up yonder, are you going to be there? And that's what he's talking about right here, having... God having provided some better thing for us, and that is eternity with Him in heaven. But while we're waiting, the last verse of that song, let us labor for the Master from the dawn till the setting sun. Let us talk of all His wondrous love and care. When this life, then when this life is over, we will be called up yonder. We'll be there. That they without us should not be made perfect. So those who are not part of the faith of the church, of the body of Christ, they're on the outside. They don't get that promise. There is a heaven. There's an afterlife. There is an afterlife. It's either heaven or hell. It's one or the other. And we have a part in choosing that. Contrary to some people, some theologians, some people who teach, we don't really have a part in that, but uh, the way I see it right here, there's all kinds of choices that had to be made by people. We have a free will. God, even though it was very risky, made us autonomous. We're not robots. We are not puppets on a string. He didn't pre-plan everything for us from, 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 from... We cut our lives short sometimes. It's not part of, part of God's plan. Don't ask me to explain all that. God is all-knowing, but at the same time, He's given us a free will. So God knows what's going to happen if we choose this or that. I'm getting into some risky areas right here. God all-knowing, how can he be all-knowing? And then we have free will to make choices. The Bible does say that God was very angry 
and was very upset that people chose certain things. If he already knew they were going to choose that way, why is he angry and upset? He should be just like, oh, yeah, I knew they were going to do that. I knew that. I knew that. I knew that. He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't need to get angry. If he already knew they were going to do that, then there's no way they could have not done it. We have a choice. We do have a choice. That was a pretty rough list of things that I just read. How, how can we have enough faith and strength to do all of these things? It's scary. If somebody got a hold of you and they want to saw you in half, that's, that's a tough ordeal, right? It's really tough. And in many cases, all you got to do is a very simple act of bringing something to an idol. Just say this. Just step on a picture of Jesus. Just do, you know, just deny him and we'll let you go. How can you stay true to God? Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. What does that mean? Who is this great cloud of witnesses? What is it? Now, different people have different ideas on that, but Charles Spurgeon has an idea of what that means. He says, what he says is, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Uh, so let me read it again. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doeth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So he says... The foot race of the Olympic Games is an, an, an illustration of the Christian life. We are directed to, directed to the spectators who throng the sides of the course. The former chapter gives us the names of many of these glorious bearers of testimony who all by faith achieved great wonders and so bore witness to the truth of God. Thousands upon thousands who have run this race before us have attained their crowns. Watch us from their heavenly seats. Angels and principalities and powers and hosts redeemed by blood have gathered to observe the glorious spectacle of people agonizing for holiness and putting forth their utmost strength to copy the Lord Jesus. This race is worth running this race for the great prize. If there is any spiritual life and gracious strength in us, let us put it forth today for patriarchs, prophets, saints, martyrs, apostles look down from heaven upon us. That's what he thinks it is. That's what Charles Spurgeon thinks it is. It's all of these people that have been listed in all of chapter 11. That's, that is this great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on from the stands. They're watching your race. I know how that feels, going to watch a race. Watching a person wanting to see them do good 
And we have all these witnesses that are uh, watching us run this race. Now, you know, this race that we run in is not a sprint. And it is a marathon, a big-time marathon. And we have to pace ourselves. And it says here, and let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily beset us. So if you're a runner, you, you don't want all the extra weight on you. Now, what is a weight for us as Christians? It's not the sin, because the sin is the next thing it talks about. A weight is not necessarily a sin, it, but it's things of this world that you love and, or, or take you away from your, your, uh, uh, what you're supposed to do for God, your Christian walk. We put things on ourselves that weight us down. And they're not necessarily bad things. It could be the things God has blessed us with. You know, if we think too much of, you know, Abraham, if he thought too much of Isaac and he wasn't willing to sacrifice him, that's a weight. That was a blessing to him. But he turned it into something that would weigh him down unless he's very willing to, to get rid of it. So we are to get rid of any of the things in this life that basically, and that's, getting, and that's also getting into, you know, we're, we're going to have a, a quick meeting after church today. Anybody who wants to stay for it, um, you know, about worship. And, and what is worship? You know, you have, we have prayer, which is basically us asking God something on a personal level. Then we have praise. So we can say, Lord, save my soul. That's a prayer. And then if he saves our soul, then we're very happy about that, and we praise him for it. So we come here and we give him praise because of what he did for our prayer. But then there's worship, and worship is different than that. You know, we come here sometimes and, and pray and praise and think that we're worshiping when worshiping is beyond that, and it's, it's looking... So, so all of those things are ministry that come down from heaven being preached to out of the Word of God, that's ministry to you individually, you're ministered to. When you sing songs or hear songs sung, that could please you and help you. But it's what we do back toward God is what true worship is. You see the difference. So a lot of times we, we say we're going to worship service and we do nothing to worship. Now, you showing up here could be worship. Just showing up is worship if you're really coming to give to God. When you give of your resources, that's, that's more of a worship thing than, than anything else because you're trusting God and you're giving back to Him. That's worship. When your time, I don't know how many times I hear people, their excuses for not coming to a Sunday worship service. It's, well, I worked hard all week long and I just need a day for myself. I need to be able to sleep in, and they got all these excuses. Well, they, they're saying that their time is, is, is more important to them than the time they should give back to God. So they're not worshiping at all. But you giving your time to God is a form of worship. But it's way more than just coming to church. It's how you live for Him during the week. You can be worshiping Him every single day by choosing His ways 
you know, wanting to read His Word when there's a book that's really, really good and you want to read this worldly book, you really want to read that. And then you decide, I'm reading this, I'm not reading that. All right, I've got to read the news, I've got to watch videos on the internet, I've got to do this, this, and this, and you, all your time is, is absorbed into that. And you're like, to my time to be entertained with all these things is more important than the time to get into the Word and to learn more about the God who offered me salvation, gave it to me, actually gave it to me, and now I don't want anything to do with Him. I don't want to spend time with Him. You wanting to spend time with Him is worshiping Him. Telling Him that He is great and mighty to save, to be able to save a poor, worthless sinner like ourselves, that's worship. That's getting the weights off. And the sin, that's obvious. You're going to trip over. A weight slows you down, but sin, you'll fall flat on your face. It's hard to run when you're laying flat on your face. I saw that yesterday. They had to shoot the gun twice to get people to come back because they tripped up over each other. They had way too many people in the race. And they got tripped up. They fell down. So, sin is different than weight, which so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Again, it's a marathon. Here's verse 2. Here's the answer, verse 2 of chapter 12, of how we can actually do all these things, that's just this really rough list, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. That's it. Look to Him, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I guess that's why I prayed that earlier. I prayed that this was in my mind. This word of God was in my mind, that verse right there, and I'm praying, just thanking God for, for His Son going to the cross for us, dying for us, and then being seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us now. We have that, so we have no excuse not to prevail in this Christian walk. We should have victory because we're looking to Jesus. And there is victory in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for all the things that you have done for us. Father, you have made a way for us to have victory in this life, in this, in this walk. And Father, I just pray that each and every one of us will have the confidence in you that our faith will be in what you have promised to us, not in what we see in ourselves. Father, I pray that none of us would look at our own strength and abilities because we will be very discouraged. But Father, we should look at our weaks, our weaknesses and our, our, our uh, struggles and know that that's exactly what you're able to use. And Father, you like to use those who know they're weak and can't do it. 
Father, you like to use impossible situations. And Father, there's many of us here that feel like we are that way. So Father, we're ready to be used by you. Use us for your glory. Help us to be uh, a light as we go out into the world and that we would be bold because we're looking unto Jesus. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.